group of followers, he told them, follow me. That was his basic instruction. And that following meant follow in relationship with me. He called them to himself that they might be with him, that they might become like him, and that they would follow him as he led them. Now, the question that comes from that is, <laughs> all right, if Jesus is summoning us to follow him, where is he leading us? And I'll, I'll give you the answer so you can just go to sleep if you like. He's leading us in building his kingdom. Jesus' intent is to build his kingdom and he's given us the honor of being part of building this eternal kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we call you king. We've just sung a song in which we declare you are our king. And I pray that you'd help us to shift in our minds our understanding, to grow in our understanding of what that means for our lives right now. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Most of us are used to the fact that when you approach a mountain range, you're usually on a plane, and as you approach the mountain range, you will climb up into the mountain range. But there's a strange place in southern Africa where you actually descend into the mountains. Most of the interior of South Africa is a plateau. Sort of the interior of South Africa is shaped like a bowl, and Johannesburg is 6,000 feet above sea level. And when you drive from Johannesburg and go to the kingdom of Swaziland, you arrive at a country that is actually below 6,000 feet. In fact, it goes all the way down to sea level. And so you have the strange sensation that as you cross the border into Swaziland, you descend into the mountains. It's the most amazing thing. You drive there, it's all flat. Nothing, no mountains visible at all. But the moment you cross that border, you go down. And as you go down, the mountains are all around you. Just an incredible experience to suddenly descend into the mountains. So that's an incredible experience. But there's also something that happens that you don't see and don't feel, but it's very real. As you leave South Africa and drive into Swaziland, you leave a republic and you enter a kingdom. Now, this is a kingdom, okay? Most of us know of kingdoms like England. Well, the queen is it's the queen, but please, how much authority does she really have? She's just a figurehead. Most of the countries that have kings and queens, their kings and queens really have no real power at all. The power is held by their parliaments or other forms of government. But when you go into Swaziland, you're in a kingdom. King Mswati, and his name King means, in, means lion, by the way. So Lion Mswati III is the king. You've gone into a place where you have now switched into a realm where there is somebody who has complete authority over his nation. Oh, he has a parliament, but he appoints the people who can run for parliament. He appoints the people, most of the people who actually serve in the parliament. He is an absolute monarch in Swaziland. And so as you cross that border, you have to be aware, and they warn you to be aware of the fact you may be carrying the passport from a republic but you have just entered into a kingdom and you are now under the authority of that king in that land. Same thing happens to you and I when we believe in Jesus Christ. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you shift from being a citizen of earth to being a citizen of earth and a citizen of heaven. And as you make that switch, you switch into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't like kings. We fought a war to get rid of one. 
We do everything we can to avoid kings. And for most of us, the idea of a king and a kingdom is something so ethereal and distinct from our lives that we don't fully grasp what a kingdom is about. But the important thing we need to know is that Jesus is leading us in building his kingdom. And that from the moment he began his ministry, Jesus' preaching and teaching was saturated with the kingdom. Mark tells us that as soon as Jesus started his ministry, he went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The good news is actually, if we wanted to translate it correctly, it would be the euphoric news. The word good is the word from which we get euphoria. Jesus came and he told the world, here's the euphoric news. The kingdom of God has come near. Now, as you study the Bible, you discover that the kingdom of God, when he said has come near, it describes the fact that the kingdom of God is now and not yet. But it's really now. The moment he stepped onto earth, the kingdom of God stepped into history in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the kingdom of God is not just sort of some cute little Sunday school story thing idea out there. The moment he stepped onto this planet and began his ministry, the kingdom of God had come on earth. And his healings, for example, are an illustration of the fact that Jesus' kingdom was taking back territory from Satan. When we rebelled against God, we gave up our sovereignty on this planet. And as a result, Satan was able to move in. But as Jesus began his ministry, he began to take back territory from Satan. Every person who was healed, every person who had demons cast out of him, every person who became a follower of Jesus Christ was another piece of the territory that Jesus was taking back from Satan. And that's what we are doing. As a church, our job is to take back territory from Satan and to bring people into the kingdom of God so that they can now experience the kingdom of God. So Jesus said, change your minds, people. Repent means change your mind. And believe the good news, that the kingdom of God has come. Now, there was a time when he sent out his disciples, and he sent them out to heal people. He sent them out to cast out demons, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. That was part of the job. So if you want to, take a concordance. You know what a concordance is? It's a great Bible tool. Takes takes words of the Bible and finds every single occurrence of those words. Go look up kingdom. And the other word I'm going to share with you in a moment. Go look up kingdom and you'll be amazed. Throughout the entire uh, New Testament, throughout the entire Gospels, the word kingdom shows up over and over and over again. Jesus is announcing to the world, I have arrived. I'm the king. And I'm taking back my territory. We find that that was true even after the crucifixion and resurrection. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. In other words, it was still primary in his message that he brought to them. As you read the New Testament, we discover that the number one spokesman for Jesus Christ in building the church, the Apostle Paul, preached the kingdom of God. This is the last verses of the book of Acts, and it says this. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God And talked about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So we don't often discuss the kingdom of God. We talk about the church. We talk about all kinds of stuff. But the kingdom of God saturated the preaching and teaching of Jesus Christ. It was what the apostles took out into the world to talk about the kingdom of God. And so since it's so important to Jesus, perhaps we should know something about the kingdom of God. And how 
it is a now kingdom and a not yet kingdom. And by the way, the now and the not yet, it's not going to be click, click. It's going to be now and not yet when he arrives and his kingdom comes into existence. So, are we supposed to do this? Well, before he ascended, Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. How much authority does he have? (laughs) The works. There's nothing that doesn't fall under his authority. So when he comes as, as king and he's declaring to us, all authority has been given to me. What are we supposed to do? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. This is called the Great Commission. It's what Jesus said the church is to be doing. We're to go into the world and we're to make disciples. A disciple, the easiest word for me that explains what a disciple is, is the word apprentice. In those days, this word that is mathetes, which is translated as disciple, was the word that we use for an apprentice. So if you wanted to learn how to be a carpenter, you would go and you would become a mathetes of a carpenter. If you wanted to learn how to do a rock cutting and, and rock uh, building, you would go to a, a, a stonemason and you would become his mathetes. So when Jesus called people to him, he's calling us to become his apprentices. He wants to teach us to think and to live the way he does. And so he said, go out into the world and you're to go and bring people to me so that they become people like me. What do people like Jesus do? This is called the Great Commission. There's a great omission in there. Look very carefully in verse 20. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. It's like, oh, there it is again. We don't like kings. We don't want somebody to have authority over us. I'm to obey Jesus Christ. But what if, when I'm obeying him, what if he leads me to do things I don't want to do? What if he leads me in a direction I don't want to go? We don't like to obey Jesus Christ because all of us are born as kings of our own lives. Just have a two-year-old in your household and you'll know how true that is. That This little creature, who's barely barely learned to speak yet, is a little creature that is ready to run not just her life, but yours as well. I remember my daughter was probably three or four, and I yelled at her. She was in the back of the car one day, and I yelled at her about something. And she sat there in silence for a minute, and she said, Daddy, you are the boss of you, are you, and I am me. You are the boss of you, and I'm the boss of me. And it's kind of like, I can't believe you actually articulated that. And I tell you what, Mandy lived that way. I am the boss. I mean, just take two kids on a car ride with you and put them in the back seat. Now, now, first of all, they're going to be going, I want to ride in the front seat, right? Shotgun, I got shotgun. If you can get two kids into the back seat, what are they going to do? Yes, they're going to fight. But before they fight... What are they going to do? They're going to establish their kingdom. They're going to say, see this line? This is my kingdom. That is yours. Do not come into my part of the car. And they've got that power. And then if you try to get them to stop fighting, now you've got three kingdoms fighting each other. The kingdom of the kid, kingdom of the kid, and the kingdom of the father. John Ortberg's got a great solution to this. He says, what you do is you speed up. Then you hit the brakes, and those two little kingdoms come forward, and then you've got them. Your kingdom has come. 
<laughs> at that point in time. We're born with kingdoms inside of us. We all have authority over our own lives. And here's the interesting thing. It's an authority that is given to us by God. He created us in his image. And he gave us the authority over our own lives. Because it's part of how he created us. And what God wanted us to do is he wanted us to take the regency that he'd given to us. And to live in relationship with him so that his ultimate regency governs our regency and that we can then accomplish what God wants to do in our lives. So think of this quiver of arrows as representing the power you and I are given over our lives. Okay, And all of us are born with this thought, I'm the master of my own fate. I'm the God of my life. I choose what I'm going to do. I am totally free. My power. But then you discover that actually you don't have full power. Because the government comes along and says to you, you need to pay taxes. I remember my son, when he got his first paycheck, he came to me and he went, where'd the rest of the money go? I said, it's called taxes. He was like, are you kidding? How dare they take my money? Yeah. Government has the right to take some of our money, and so we lose some power. They tell us that in order to drive, you have to have a driver's license, and how fast you're allowed to drive. And so I've got power over my own life, but they took some of it away. Sometimes we give some of our power to another person, a parent or a mentor. It's a good choice. Say, I want you to help me. I want you to guide me. I want you to lead me. So sometimes losing power over our lives can be a positive thing that we do in handing over that power to somebody. Sometimes, though, we give power to somebody that shouldn't have it, somebody who has no right to be telling you how to live your life. And we hand them that power, and we let them have it. It's just the most amazing thing how many people will do that. They will live with somebody abusive, and they will live under that abuse, and they will continue to live with that abuse and not take their power back again. By the way, one of the concepts of of power to understand is when you give somebody power over your life through sinning or some way, you've given them power. And sometimes you can't retrieve it. Once it's been given away, it's gone forever. We also give away some of our power to philosophies and political ideologies where we think this is the absolute way the universe should be run and this is how the world should be governed. And what is fascinating about us is that once you've chosen what the political philosophy is that you think should govern the world, it is so hard to change. Ever notice that? Once it's there, you will defend everybody who leads your political party, no matter what kind of a jerk they may be, no matter how stupid they may, may say things, you will defend them because this is where I'm committed. This is my political philosophy, and it's very, very hard to change. It's like, wait a minute, I'm losing power. I've given power to something external to me. Sometimes we do that with religion. And you choose a particular religion, and from there on out, nobody could talk you out of that religion. You're committed to it for life. Sometimes we give away our power to something that will harm us, like drugs or French fries. (laughs) And at the end of the day, we still think I'm God in my own life. We still think I'm in power. We still think I'm the master. How's that working out? Okay, so here's the fascinating thing. Jesus says, let me come into your life and be your king. 
And you go, what are you going to do to me? If I let you be my king, what's going to happen to my life? Well, part of understanding that is for us just to then examine what kind of a king he's going to be. Here's a summary. When you take the Old Testament and New Testament together, here's a summary of what he will be like. King Jesus is the sort, source of the perfect, peaceful, and prosperous life God intends for all humanity. As our king, that's what he's trying, it was intending to build. He will build a kingdom like that. How do we know that? Well, <clears throat> do you remember these verses which we hear read at Christmas time? For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. We could actually, and I have, we can spend days studying all of that description of him as our king. But just want to grab hold of that statement, that he's the Prince of Peace, and that of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The word peace is a Hebrew word, shalom. Now, think carefully about this. Who used the word shalom in our world right now? Who will say to others, shalom? Jews, okay. What is the Arabic parallel to shalom? Salam. So, when you go to somebody and say shalom to them, you're saying a whole lot more than good morning or hello. And I'll explain that in just a moment. When you go to somebody and say salam to them, you're saying a whole lot more than hello. But we watch that part of the world where everybody's going around saying shalom, salam, shalom, salam, shalom, shalom to one another. And is that period, that part of the world, is that governed by peace? No. <laughs> Not at all. Isn't that incredible? The people who greet one another all the time with that word shalom or salam is a part of the world where that peace doesn't exist. And here's the reason why. Because we cannot produce shalom. We cannot produce salam. We cannot produce the kind of life that Jesus wants to give to us. We are absolutely unable to do that. Here's what the, the word shalom means. It means to be complete, sound, whole, perfect, at peace. Notice peace is part of its description, but it's way broader than just peace. It means a sense of wholeness in relationship with God, wholeness in relationship with others, Wholeness in relationship with oneself. So when the Bible uses the word shalom and describes him as the prince of shalom, the one who is going to govern the world with constant and increasing shalom, it does, doesn't just mean cessation of war. It doesn't mean just cessation of hostility. It means something complete. In fact, we often use the statement that is so heavenly. That's shalom. Every possible positive concept that you could find of something that humanity would really, really want that is pure and that is perfect would be summed up by the word shalom. It's a one-word description of a better life than we can create ourselves. And that's the important thing to understand. Because you see, every single politician promises, I can bring shalom. I can bring the answer. They can't. They never can, no matter how good they are, no matter how skilled they are. They cannot bring shalom. They cannot lead us to a place where we will eventually have peace. We used to sing hymns 
they'd had the, the hope that the world is going to slowly get better and better and better and that eventually God's kingdom will come on earth because all people will have surrendered to Jesus. There's a hymn that goes, And the darkness shall turn to the dawning, and the dawning to noonday bright, and God's great kingdom will come to earth, the kingdom of light and life. And we sing that, unaware of the fact that we're singing something that is fake news. It's never going to happen. Human beings cannot create what God alone can create. We cannot create shalom. And shalom is a one-word description of the best of all possible kings. Jesus is the one who can and will bring shalom to this world. Just a few verses. In Isaiah 54, it says, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, God says, Yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of shalom be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. He says, I have made a commitment that I'm going to bring shalom to this world and I will not break that promise. That's he's speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Through the prophet Jeremiah, he spoke to the nation Israel and he said to them, I'm taking away your experience of shalom right now. Okay, In order for the nation to experience God's shalom, all they had to do was trust him and obey him. And as long as they trusted God and obeyed him, They experienced shalom. God said to them, you trust me and obey me and no enemy will come near you. You trust me and obey me, you will have a land of flowing in milk and honey. A land that is continually producing everything you want. You will live with prosperity as long as you trust and obey me. But they didn't. And because they didn't, God said, well, if you walk out from under my protection, then you're going to find that shalom goes away. And the shalom did go away. But because of his commitment to bring shalom to the world, God said these words which we all know, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, shalom you, and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, before you take that as your life verse, you need to understand that it was not spoken to you. It was spoken to the nation Israel. And so we can't take that and go, well, God promised that I'm going to prosper and I'm never going to be harmed and have a wonderful future and my life is going to be wonderful and God is not keeping his promise. He didn't make it to you and me. He made it to the nation Israel because he says to them, and you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart and I will bring you back to your land. So it's spoken to them, but it does reveal the, the, the character of our God. Okay, It does reveal that our God is a God who wants to shalom us. He wants to bring that kind of blessing into our lives. Now, the interesting thing is, when they translated the uh, Old Testament into Greek, the word shalom was then translated by the Greek word irene. And irene, in the New Testament, picks up all the concepts of shalom from the Old Testament and brings them across into the, the, the Greek word irene. By the way, just allow me to do something real quickly. I want to describe how shalom showed up sometimes in the Bible, okay? Um, It was used for prosperity. In Psalm 73, the psalmist says, I saw the shalom of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to men. They are not plagued by human life. They should not have shalom. Do you see how he understood what shalom would be like? Their life would be prosperous. Their life would be healthy and wealthy. And, and, and he was really annoyed. So God had to tell him, okay, their shalom is temporary, okay? 
Right now, they, they've got a, a, just an imitation of shalom. They don't have the real thing. Psalm 80, 38, David says this, My bones have no shalom because of my sin. I've lost shalom because of it. He says in Psalm 4, verse 8, I will lie down and sleep in shalom. For you alone, O Lord, lead me in safety. Only God can give us that shalom. Hang on, I've got to, I've got to show you just one. Uh, that's good. You get the point? Shalom comes from God. It's only something that God gives to us, and it's way in excess of anything that we could ever hope for. So in the New Testament, the word shalom is now the Greek word irene, and it takes the whole concept of shalom and brings it into our experience. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have shalom with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Once you believe in Jesus Christ, we're brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We're transferred into that place where now we live with one foot in heaven with the shalom of God available to us because Jesus Christ is our shalom. And Jesus said this to us. I have told you these things so that in me you may have shalom. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I just love the truthfulness of, of, the, of the Bible. In this world, you will have trouble. Okay, You've still got one foot stuck here on this planet. But I have come so that in the middle of this world, you will experience shalom. What kind of shalom? The kind of shalom that nobody else can possibly invent. Shalom I leave with you. My shalom I give to you. I do not give you as the Lord gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus says, as my followers, there is a shalom that is available to you that the world cannot have. There is a wholeness. There's a, an experience of tranquility with other people. There's an experience of tranquility with God. There's an experience of prosperity, temporary, but prosperity that the world cannot have at all because of that shalom. And it's interesting that most of the New Testament books start with this statement. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and shalom to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Each of the writers is not just sort of doing a flippant, hi there, nice to know you, dear, this is, dear so-and-so, this is Raymond. They praying that grace and shalom would dominate the lives of God's people. And God wants us to be people who experience that shalom. He wants us to experience that kind of wholeness during our lives here. So, how do we experience it? By trusting him and obeying him. You go to somebody who's going to help you lose weight. And they tell you what to eat. And you just go eat whatever you want to. Are you going to lose weight? No. You go to somebody who's a fitness trainer and they tell you to do these exercises and you, eh, I'm not going to do it. If you trust them, you obey them. Isn't that true? If you trust them, you will do what they recommend. And so Jesus says to us, I want to change your lives. I want to bring shalom to your life. And he says, so what I want you to do is with every area of your life, I want you to go and I want you to trust me when I teach you. I want you to trust me when I command you. I want you to trust me so that as you trust me and you obey me, I can bring the experience of shalom into your life. Notice that he doesn't take away our independence. He doesn't take away our freedom. He says, bring yourself to me and I will bring shalom upon you as you allow me to touch your life.
just a couple of, of, of ways that we should do it, for example. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the, of the Spirit through the bond of what? Shalom. Make every effort to keep the, the, the unity of the church through the bond of peace. The fact that we have to be commanded to make every effort means that it takes work to keep the unity and the peace and the shalom within a church. It means we have to be committed to doing that and doing everything we can to protect it. In the book of Philippians, Paul says, oh, all right, he says this, finally, brothers, sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. In other words, he's saying recondition your brain. Turn your mind, cleanse your mind, and turn your mind toward the things that are of God. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of Shalom will be with you. In fact, he preceded this by telling us, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I experienced that personally years ago. I, when I first came to this country, I, I'm the kind of person who suffers from homesickness before I leave home. Okay? I'm, I'm homesickness before I ever walk out the door. I came here to this country to go to college. I knew I wasn't going to be able to go home for at least four years. I had no idea it was going to be way longer than that. And I was almost paralyzed with homesickness. It really it just invaded my life. And I had this homesickness that just was there all the time. And at lunch one day, one of the girls, her name was Susie, and I'd known her from South Africa days. Susie said to me, what's wrong with you? And for once in my life, I admitted what was wrong with me. Usually I hide. I said, I'm just so homesick. I can't stand it. I, you know, I, it just, I, I miss my family so much, and I am so homesick. And that's what's wrong with me. And I left lunch, and I was walking this path that led from our college down toward the men's dorm. And as I was crossing there in the middle of that field, a blanket of peace fell over me. It was the most astounding thing that all of a sudden it was just as if a blanket had been thrown over me and the homesickness was gone. And I knew, and I turned around and I looked up, the girls' dorms were on the top of our college. I looked toward where the girls' dorms were and I knew that it had come from there. And so I went back in and I found Susie and I said, did you just do something about what I told you? She said, yeah, I got a group of my friends and we prayed for you. I said, it's the most astounding thing. God answered your prayer like that. I missed my family still, but I wasn't paralyzed with homesickness from then on for the rest of the time. There are times when God's shalom comes into our life, and I experienced his shalom many times, but that way, on that particular day. Does God want us to experience shalom? Do you remember these words? The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you're to bless the Israelites. God said, I want you, Aaron, the leaders of the nation, I want you to let the nation know what I want their experience to be like. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you shalom. We ask what kind of a king is Jesus going to be? If I give him authority over my life, what's he going to do? He's going to bring his shalom. He's going to bring that peace and that perfection. He's going to bring that prosperity. He's going to bring that stuff, that heavenly stuff that only God can bring to us. 
And one of the reasons we come to the communion table is to step back into the protection of Jesus Christ. It's to step back into relationship with him and to recommit ourselves to him and say to him, I'm here, I want to obey you, I want to trust you, and I want to allow you to bring shalom into my life. Next week we look at the fact that now our job is to carry that shalom and give it to others as well because he doesn't want us just to hoard it for ourselves. But the idea of the Lord's table is to give us an opportunity to reflect clearly on the fact that Jesus took the punishment of our sins upon himself in order to set us free from hell. And when we come to this table, we eat the bread as a statement that just as I take this bread into my mouth, I have taken Jesus into my life. And so if you've already believed in Jesus Christ, we invite you to come and to join us. And the way we're going to do it today is I'm going to ask you to go to the outside, feed around the outside and come down the middle aisle. You'll be served the bread as, as you come through. And what we do is we eat the bread individually, just as an individual statement that I have accepted Christ as my Savior. Then come to the front and we'll serve you the, 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 the wine. It's grape juice, but still, we'll serve you the wine. And then we will drink it together as a statement of how we are gathered together as God's people. But before we do, the Bible says we should examine ourselves and make sure that we don't treat this as a ritual. It's not a ritual. When we come to this table, our king is actually the host. We serve on his behalf, but he's the host of this table. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. Remember my death, remember my presence, and remember the fact that I'm coming again for you. And so let's prepare our hearts, and then when we're ready, I'll instruct us to come to the table. Let's prepare our hearts. Lord God, you have never called perfect people to become your followers because there are no perfect people. And we are always imperfect. We will be till you come again. And we will never arrive at perfection until you come. And so the imperfections in us are no surprise to you at all. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to, by grace, accept your forgiveness and your cleansing. By your grace to set right anything that must be set right, that we can set right. But we start by, by receiving, right now, your forgiveness. And the Spirit of God said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So just bring it before him, own up to whatever it is that you need cleansing. And now accept it by faith. And Lord Jesus, we come to this table now in remembrance of what you did for us in the past, in awareness of the fact that you're here right now as our king and in anticipation of your coming in the future. And we come in Christ's name. Amen.